So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Criteria, whether it's through a recruiter or in-house HR and recruitment, whatever it is that got you to the point that you're interviewing somebody, you're, you're hoping that they are you know, qualified for the role. Obviously, you're going to find that out in a variety of different ways. But what we think is truly important for companies is to find out what makes them tick. What is it that is important to them? You're absolutely right. Like having a sleep pod or a ping pong table, sure, it it might be nice for some people. That might be a nice perk. But if you're a 37-year-old person with two kids, what may be more important? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Rashawn Blumberg, uh, who has a very interesting new book that I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading. Can you tell us about Game Changer? Sure. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. Game Changer is a book that we wrote sort of as a distillation of experiences we've had representing talent over the course of the last 25 years. It's sort of broken up into two sections. The first section is really focused on what companies can do to um, attract, hire, manage, and retain top talent, whom we call 10Xers. The second half of the book is really geared towards individuals and prescriptively helping them to learn how to sort of push themselves down the 10x spectrum more towards 10x. That probably brings up the natural question, like, what is a 10xer? What what do you mean when you say that? And thank you for asking that question, by the way. For us, a 10xer is somebody who is equal parts high IQ and high EQ. So, you know, it's fine if you're super, super smart. That's great. But if you can't interact with people, if you don't have an emotional intelligence to sort of read the room and communicate what it is you're doing... I can guarantee that you're sort of not going to be successful in your endeavors because you can't get people on board with you and you can't work well with others. So for us, a 10Xer really is somebody who delivers exponential results because they have a high IQ and maybe even more importantly, a high EQ. So that's a little overview overview about the book. Yeah. Well, I, I want to dive into it and I specifically want to bring up my first employee I ever had like that that completely changed my view of business as a result. But let's let's start with a little bit of background. Can you tell people about John Mayer and Cherry Pop and Daddies and how you ended up getting to the businesses you yeah, right now? Absolutely. So myself and my partner, Michael Solomon, we've known each other since third grade. We both grew up in New York City, you know sort of came of age in the 80s and really grew up around people whose parents were in the entertainment business. So I think where other people may have fallen in love with music and film and thought about the actors and the musicians and and things of that nature, we really grew up looking behind the scenes at the people who represented the artists, 
um, and entertainers, entertainment lawyers, artist managers. So at a very young age, I think we were exposed to that side of the world. And that sent me down a path. I went to, to business school, but I studied entrepreneurial management. And my four years in college, I also ran the concert committee. So I got involved in entertainment right out of college, even within when I was in college, working in concert promotion. Michael ended up working at a record company. But we always wanted to be sort of at the center of the talent equation, working with the talent directly, kind of being the center for all the spokes to go out of all the different elements, the record label, the, the publishing company, the booking agent, the performing rights society, publicity, all those things run through management. So at a fairly young age and probably, you know, against the guidance of more experienced people, we set out and started our own, our own company in 1995 called Brickwall Management. And around 2000, 2001, we were introduced to John Mayer, whom we immediately fell in love with and co-managed him with a guy named Michael McDonald, which was, you know, sort of a transformative experience. The prior six years, we had sort of spent perfecting our concepts of management, and we were really able to bring those all to bear on John Mayer, which I don't even want to take credit, but like John Mayer was this massive success, and it just helped to fortify our beliefs of how to represent talent. And then around 2010, people started to refer to tech talent as rock stars. And we had been hiring tech freelancers for a decade plus at that point to build out websites and web properties and apps for the entertainment world. And we kept sort of bumping up some up against similar problems. And at the time, we didn't think we would necessarily be part of the solution. But at the point where they started talking about rock stars, tech talent as rock stars, a little bit of a light bulb went off. And, and we thought perhaps the type of talent representation that we've done in entertainment could transfer to other verticals. And so we started the first of its kind tech talent agency, 10X Management, where we basically took the concepts from entertainment and sports representation and ported it over to senior level tech freelancers. So the value proposition there is we take the business elements off of the plate of our freelancers that we, we represent. We handle negotiating agreements, papering them. We handle the invoicing and collection. We help to sort of smooth rough spots over and nip things in the bud when they arise, essentially freeing them up to do what they do best, which is build and solve problems. And, and that was, you know, there was a lot of similarity between these two constituencies, entertainers like John Mayer and Vanessa Carlton, whom we still work with. We still have the entertainment company. And all those experiences of, of representing that kind of talent is really what led us to the book. So that's that's kind of our background. Have you seen the Mike Myers documentary, Supermensch, about Shep Gordon? I have seen it. And I've also read about Shep. I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader of like music biographies and, and histories. Uh, and I love that story. And I, I relate to all of them in, in certain ways. I think that there's a time and a place like Shep was there at the right time, the right place with the right ideas and attitude. I wish, you know, very often I wish I could have been born much, much earlier because I feel like, you know, what we brought to the table was super effective in our day, but would have been just exponentially more effective back in the day. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some right time, right place when you happen to just stay at the hotel where Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and everybody's hanging out, right? And yes, end up being representing Alice Cooper for 40 years or something. But the thing that I, one of the reasons I was really looking forward to having you on the show is it was magic to me seeing where he took those same skill sets to chefs who were kind of being treated like garbage and Emeril Lagasse and, and like, the biggest name celebrity chefs really attributed that whole industry to him and bringing this skill set 
to that expertise. Yeah. And what he did was definitely an influence on our thought that maybe we could do what we do in different verticals as well. I'm sure I've referenced it in other places and we may have even put it in the book, but but the idea of chefs having representation was definitely at the forefront of our mind around 2010, 2011, when we started the company. And I think that the reality is that anywhere you have high performers, people that make a difference in whatever vertical they're in, they probably could benefit from this type of representation. Well, I... I'm really looking forward to your book. I'm so happy you have it on audio because I'm an audio only kind of guy. But, you know, for me, I, I had this experience. You know, I was I was a young guy, CEO of a private equity fund, and I hired this guy who was like my dad's age and it was like most I'd ever paid an employee. It was like $300,000 a year. And so it was like, you know, between double and triple what we were paying our next highest employee at the time, right? And he was worth more like 10 times those other employees. Like literally, it was funny because you used 10 times. But yeah. like- it, it was like, we went to this investment banking firm and we got down to the final two finalists of buying this energy property. And he's like, oh yeah, we don't want to pay cash for that. You should just take our shares. We're not, we're not putting up cash. <laughs> and I was like, we, we can do that? Like, are, are we big enough? And he's like, yeah, yeah, Jess, we're totally worth it. They should definitely go for this. And I couldn't believe it came down to us and an all cash offer. And they were like literally considering us because of what this guy, Steve Calderwood did for me, right? And just set the yeah. example. And it was just like this huge eye-opening thing of like, you know, I'd mostly been an entrepreneur after leaving investment banking and I was kind of a high achiever and having somebody who was like so distinctly better than me in such an impactful way for the whole business was just like, like my, my philosophy previously had been like, who's the least expensive employee that is right. adequate enough. That that's what my mindset had been before. And it just like, it changed my whole world to like, okay, we actually are like, drastically underpaying this guy because we're paying him triple the other people. But if he's worth 10x, we're actually getting right. like a 70% deal on this guy. Right. And I mean, this time around of, of our current fund, I decided not to be the CEO. And I'm just the chairman. And we hired a guy who for 17 years has buying commercial been buying commercial real estate. He's already bought over $2 billion worth of properties. And, you know, eat, breathe and sleep it for 19 years now. And so I'm interested, I'm interested in what you're going to say in the book, but, but as kind of a preview for me, can you tell us one of your favorite stories from the book? Well, first of all, I, I really wish we had met before we wrote the book because it's filled with interviews with people like yourself who have had experiences with real 10Xers, right? So most people think of this 10X idea as a concept, which to a certain degree it is because very few people are truly 10Xers. We're also, you know, hopefully we're striving to be more 10X, but there are legitimate people like you're referencing that can make an exponential difference. My favorite story in the book, and there really, there are a lot of great stories in the book, but we interview Bruce Springsteen's management, John Landau and Barbara Carr. And Bruce Springsteen, without knowing it, was really the first 10Xer that we came in contact with. Again, having grown up in New York City, we were very close friends with Barbara Carr's daughter, who unfortunately passed away of cancer. And we started a charity in her name. That's one of the organizations that we help work, we do work for, called the Kristen Ann Carr Fund. But being exposed to Springsteen and his team at an early age really was the blueprint for 10X for us. Like we didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, so interviewing them for the book was was really a treat and a pleasure. And not to send people to other podcasts, but we have a podcast episode with Barbara Carr, which you might enjoy. That's 
on our uh, book website, GameChangerTheBook.com. And you know, and the what's the name of your that, podcast if people want to look it up? That's a very good question. We only did five episodes of it, so it's it's a finite period of time. I believe it was Game Changer Podcast. I think it was it was okay. su- very very simply titled, but it's on the website there and. You know, it's it's a fascinating story, sort of like you talked about with Shep, where John Landau happened to be at the, the right person at the right moment in time to work with Bruce Springsteen. And he tells us the story of basically how he gained Bruce's trust. It wasn't a planned thing. It just sort of happened. But Bruce called him. Should I I mean, should I tell the story? Should I give it yeah, away? Yeah, let's. All right. So Bruce calls him in the middle of the night during a snowstorm. I want to say maybe it's like 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And it's a major snowstorm in the Northeast. And he had just parted ways with his manager. John Landau, at this point, is a really well-respected music journalist, maybe had produced the MC5, you know, was was a very intelligent, competent, and capable person, but had never done artist management. So Bruce says, hey, you know, John, I'd really love you to come over. John was living in New York. Bruce was living in New Jersey. Come over tonight. Let's hang out. Let's play records. You know, let's talk. Bruce is like, John is like, Bruce, it's it's a blizzard outside. Like, I don't even know if I could physically get there. But something in him said, you know what? I need to do this because I need to demonstrate that, that this is a genuine relationship here and, and this is not something transactional. And somehow he made it out there. He said it took him several hours and he spent the entire night, he and Bruce, just talking and playing music and hanging out. And that bond that they developed over those types of sessions and demonstrating to him that this was a real relationship that he took very seriously really set the foundation. And he, and he attributes that one moment in time potentially being the reason that he ended up working with Bruce Springsteen. You know, and the rest of it is obviously history. But it was just, it was really amazing, A, to learn sort of behind the scenes what goes on and, and how those relationships transpire and develop. And also it, it signals the value of trust in any relationship, right? It's something that it takes forever to be built, but it can be snapped in a second. And that is really the backdrop of the book that we talk about, both from what companies need to do with high performers and what individuals need to do in their own life. You talk about the fact that the the new company you're with, you're the chairman, not the CEO, and you found somebody who you felt could perform better. You know, that kind of foresight and understanding of your own potential blind spots, you know, maybe you wouldn't have been the best person to, to run that company and you identified that. A lot of people don't have people in their lives that can help them see those things and can't see it for themselves. And that's one of the things that we talk about is sort of finding that person that can help you. And John Landau played that role for Bruce Springsteen to a T. You know, it is interesting, you know, thinking about that, like my favorite business hero is Warren Buffett. And he talks about this idea of like, you know, reputation, like trust, reputation, these things take a lifetime to build and seconds to lose, right? Yeah, yeah. So if somebody goes to the the website for the book and takes the quiz, what's it going to tell them? So the quiz, I mean, look, the quiz is a companion to the book. I I would say absent the book, the quiz is somewhat meaningless, right? It'll give you some very general idea of sort of where you fall on that spectrum towards 10xness, but take it in conjunction with the book and where you will understand some of the things that we value and what we believe a 10xer needs to possess. I think it can be really powerful, but you'll learn 
first of all, like based on how you answer the questions, you'll get a response of, you know, you're three quarters of the way towards 10x, maybe focus on this specific chapter or these types of ideas. But it's really meant to be a general overview, a baseline of where you stand at this moment in time. And also you can take it on behalf of your company and what you know about them to see how prepared they are and how modern and sophisticated they are as it relates to being able to find, attract, retain, and manage you know, top talent. So I think it'll be fun. And I think it's a great companion piece for the book. Yeah. You know, there are these quotes from some of the top people in the tech world, like Bill Gates, talking about just how much more his top talent was worth yeah. than, than regular talent. And it, the, the numbers they quote are, you know, they, they feel unrealistic when they say they're so many times more, 100 times, 1000 times more valuable um, than average talent. And yet they claim that's how they built their companies. So it feels like there's got to be something to it, right? Yeah. No, I mean, look, we've seen this and this is what we try to demonstrate in the book. We, we've seen it over and over and over again. It is not a fiction or a fantasy. And the reality is the companies have to do so much more with less. Technology and efficiency are merging to a point where companies can achieve more with far fewer resources. So those resources that they do have need to be really, really great. And that's you know, that's something that you can either understand that concept and really thrive within it, or you can sort of fail to understand that concept or keep practices in place that are really a calcified and old world. I mean, I love the movie Office Space where, you know, you got to get the TPS reports in and you got to come in on the Sunday and, and the manager really doesn't even know what you do or who you are or what you're about. He just wants what he needs to have because that's those are his marching orders. That world doesn't exist anymore for, for companies that are really on the forefront. You have to be mission-driven and in sync with your your key employees and, and have your mission and their mission sync up or else it's never going to work. And so that's really what, A, what we've learned over the course of the last 25 years in working with talent is like, if you don't have a mission and that mission and vision doesn't sync up with who you're trying to bring in and retain, it's not going to work out. So th that's the value, I think, of, of sort of that. That's the lesson I think you get out of the book, both in the first part, which is geared towards companies, and the second part, which is geared towards individuals, where if you're not striving to be the best you can possibly be and constantly learning and getting feedback and finding people in your life to sort of mentor your mentor you along the way, you're going to be left out. Automation and AI is going to leave you out of the food chain in the workplace, uh, the workforce. So that's really what it is. It's a little bit of a, of a warning. Yeah. So for, you know, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to the show, investment fund managers, corporate innovators, kind of, it's kind of a mirror of our guests really a lot. And we, we hear all these things about like to attract top talent. This is what they're doing in Silicon Valley, right? There's free food and dogs and, and, you know, these, these table tennis type perks that really don't feel like they quite get to the heart of the issue. Let's, let's start with this. My first question is for folks who maybe don't come from a strong technical background, if they're trying to evaluate, is this person really tier one? Like, is this really 10x talent? What are some, what are some questions that we should be asking? What are some mindsets that we should be bringing to the table to, to evaluate? Does this person just interview well, or are they really on the level? Right. Well, look, if you're specifically talking about hiring tech talent, I think that there is a variety of vetting that should be done as it relates to the quality of the work. But I, I'd like to sort of reframe my answer here more about 
what I think is important for companies to find out about a person, not necessarily about their skill set, because theoretically, when you've gotten to the point that you're interviewing somebody, they've already passed through certain criteria, whether it's through a recruiter or in-house HR and recruitment, whatever it is that got you to the point that you're interviewing somebody, you're, you're hoping that they are you know, qualified for the role. Obviously, you're going to find that out in a variety of different ways. But what we think is truly important for companies is to find out what makes them tick. What is it that is important to them? You're absolutely right. Like having a sleep pod or a ping pong table, sure, it, it might be nice for some people. That might be a nice perk. But if you're a 37-year-old person with two kids, what may be more important to that person is work flexibility. You know, Fridays, I can leave it too to pick my kids up on Friday and, and either come back to work or work from home. Right. If you don't understand who this person is and what makes them tick, I can guarantee you, A, you probably will not put together an offer that really speaks to what they truly value. And B, you're not going to understand who they are when you have to manage this person. Right. So to me, what companies need to be doing at the outset of this interview process, in addition to determining if the skill set is actually right, is finding out more about who the person is. What is it? What kinds of perks actually are going to make them percolate? You know, what's important to them? Is it title? Is title something that's super important to them? Because maybe they've languished at a certain level for, for a long time and haven't been recognized. So money may not be the, the differentiator, but having a different title might be the differentiator. Or they've always worked in a bullpen and they hate working in a bullpen because they're coding and when people are constantly talking around them or coming up and tapping them, that distracts their flow and they can't they can't produce as well. So maybe putting them in an office space with a door that can be closed is going to be the difference maker for them. If you don't find these things out at the outset, you know, you're just not going to be able to put together the right kind of package or learn how to manage them from the outset correctly. So to me, that's what's most important. You know, it's interesting to me because like as a kid, you know, I worked construction jobs. I was always trying to get snowboard money so that I didn't have to work during the year, right? So I worked construction. I worked on the oil and gas pipeline. I, between college semesters, once I worked in a kitty litter factory, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever it took, right? So really like in the construction world, there was like, there was people who could, who could do a good job. And then there was the kids who like really hustled, Right. And like, I remember as like a 15 year old, we were taking apart this Boston pizza restaurant. Okay. And they had like, I don't know, 15 or 20 of us there for the demolition. Right. And then pretty soon they, over the next week and two, they started letting people go. And like, when it got down to just me and the last guy, he said, you know, the, the, the owner of the whole company came to the site and, and had heard about us. And just, he sat us, he sat the two of us down and said like, if you guys continue this work ethic up, you can have anything you want in life. Like you guys will get wherever you want in your careers if you can keep if you can manage to keep this up. Yeah. And so there was there was a difference. Like, you know, we were probably maybe we were working twice as hard as the guys who got let go, right? But it wasn't it wasn't like an exponential number better. And yet you see what's possible in tech. Like because of the duplication factor, like if you get it right, if the customer experience is epic, if you if you can do what your competitors can't, the rewards are so incredibly outsized that it feels more like pro athletes. You know, one of my favorite books this year is the Reed Hastings book, CEO of Netflix, talking about how they run their business more like a pro sports yeah. team. Like they got the support staff, they pay a little bit better than average, but those people who might win us an Oscar will pay whatever it takes. 
you know, and yeah, you might not be here for 40 years. Like you're here for the time that you're needed. And then we give you big severance on the way out, but we tell you that before you even start. But it's like in that world that, you know, their version of 10X in creativity, in storytelling is the difference of, does somebody become, you know, a, a, a Disney plus subscriber and drops their Netflix subscription or not. Right. And so it just has such an outsized benefit to the business that they treat those people different. Yeah. I mean, I would I would even go so far as to say Uber and Lyft. Lyft is a competitor, a valid competitor of Uber's, probably because the CEO, initial CEO of Uber, had such a toxic personality that it left open a, a place where some where a company with a different idea and a different way of work could flourish because people were like, I don't want to take Uber. I don't. I just don't want to work with them because who is this guy? You know, he's. There's sexual harassment in the, in the workplace. There are all these issues. So when you don't have a top-down mentality and you're not a brand ambassador for your company, to me, leadership and being a CEO in a modern company is basically being a brand ambassador. Yeah, you're doing a ton of other things, but if you're not living the values of the company, the company that really has no values because it's got to be top-down. So I think that is a huge differentiator for Netflix is the fact that they treat their people well. They, they strive for greatness in everything that they do, and they value their, their talent, both the talent that works for them and the talent that works with them. You know, Dave Chappelle, I believe, recently had requested that all of his stuff be pulled off, pulled down from Netflix. And I think Netflix probably contractually could have kept it up there, but they took it down because they understand that if they want to have a relationship with somebody like Dave Chappelle, who's an outsized talent... Sometimes you have to do things that you that sort of fly in the face of business. And I believe that after doing that, he sort of came back and was like, I'm now going to you know, give you permission to do these things. And, and you're, you know, you've got the green light. So it makes a huge difference. And what you were talking about in your example of, of the construction worker concept to me is about grit, uh, grit and passion. That will always win the day over almost anything else. If you can stick with it and be smart about it, and you're passionate about what you do, you will be recognized. Whether it's as an entrepreneur, your company will be recognized, or as a contributor in a larger company, you will be recognized as a difference maker. Whether you're 10X or 2X or not, that grit and passion makes a huge difference. You know, it's interesting the way that you talk in such humanizing ways. It really reminds me of my business partner, one of our partners at our real estate funds named Lindsay Hadley. She has a consulting firm called Hadley Impact Consulting, where she helps celebrities and billionaires with their charities, right? So Kevin Bacon, his charity Six Degrees, Hugh Jackman's wife, Jeberly Furness, Hopeland, you know, and these folks. And just spending so much time with her, I've been able to see like over the years, just how much people objectify these celebrities. And it's so off-putting. Yeah. And, and how it can take like extra work to like break, you know, to get them to go shields down and think that you're going to be one of the people who's not just here to use them or not just yeah. treat them like a, a product or a number or a walking ATM machine. Can, can you talk about your experience with that over, over the years, maybe start on the, on the music side and, and then we can talk about how it applies to other careers. Well, I, I think there is this idea and we've seen it with the NBA over the last couple of years, like this shut up and dribble, like just, you know, you're, you're a, a sports figure, so you should have no other opinions. You should not be able to weigh in on civic responsibility or race relations or government because, you know, you're just a celebrity. You don't really have any purpose other than for entertainment. Uh, and the reality is that whether it's an entertainer, musician, an athlete, or uh, an employee, these are all people. 
They're all existing in the world. They're all interacting. They're doing things that they deem important and worthy. You know, there are probably some notable exceptions of people who are just kind of fluff and out there. But by and large, people that are uh, vocal about their opinions and about things that are going on in the world, they stand for something and they believe in something. And more often than not, they're putting their money where their mouth is and they're putting their actions and their weight and their considerable means, both financial, political, and social, towards making our world a better place. So, you know, I, I completely applaud that. I've sadly, I've worked with some artists who have had stalkers and, and other types of people who have really ruined their lives in, in some ways. One in particular, you know, a stalker who is just, you know, a complete nightmare to one of my clients. But there are other kinds of stalkers, right? There are business people that have taken advantage of them, relationships that they've been in where they've been taken advantage of. So I think that this kind of exploitation happens more often than we see across the board. It just heightened when it comes to celebrities. You know, you hear about it more you see it more, it's more in the media, but I think it happens to all of us. You know, we've all experienced someone in our life who has exploited us, taken advantage of us, or, you know, fleeced us in some way. You know, the old saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame, fool me twice, shame on me. You know, I, I've, I've had a couple of shame on me situations before where I've, you know, thought the best of somebody and they've taken advantage of me. So, you know, that, that stuff is out there and it's, it's more publicized about people that are high profile, but it happens to everybody. And, you know, so it's horrible. Yeah. So my, my question is, there's probably nobody who's listening who's like, man, I was planning on exploiting people, but now that I've listened today, I'm not going to. <laughs> right? okay. But there's the other side of this of like, okay, well, what are the actions where, you know, maybe we want to attract a high profile person. Maybe we want, you know, to work with a celebrity to represent our brand or these kind of things. When it comes to either some principles or a story of, okay, what can we do to try to earn trust with people who might be a little skeptical because of how they've been treated? Are, are, is there anybody that sets a good example for you of how to, how to help, how to get celebrities to trust them, how to prove I'm not here to use you? You know, look, it's, it's very challenging. Celebrities in particular, it's very challenging because they've been through that many times before. So, you know, trust has to be earned every moment. And as we talked about earlier, can be shattered in an instant. So I think being consistent, being genuine, not letting those moments of exploitation ever happen. I think that, you know, the celebrity side of it is, is really nuanced and, and different, I think, than the employee, which I think is far more direct to me. It's not necessarily just about money. Yes, you can value somebody by paying them a lot more. But I think almost more important than money is valuing them as people. So for companies to really be able to retain employees, it's more about the way they're treated and valued and the why of, of them showing up to work. Like, why are they coming to work? Is it, if it's just for the money, it's not going to work. They'll, they'll just bail somewhere else that'll give them more money. But if there's another reason, maybe you treat them ex exceptionally well, you give them the kind of freedom that they need and, and thrive from, you manage them in a way that, that really identifies who they are as an individual as opposed to, you know, I need my TPS reports being on a Sunday, like an office space. Sometimes valuing the, the person and what they need as an individual and lining up their purpose and mission with your values at a, as a company will supersede salary. So I think for companies to succeed in retaining people, they truly have to be, uh, they have to have a people first mentality. We talk about it, our book name has the talent economy in it because we don't view people as employees. To us, they're talent. 
it's like you were talking about with with the the sports team analogy with with Netflix. We use it in the book a lot. Like top performers and people who can make a huge difference in your company are absolutely no different than LeBron James or Michael Jordan. They are exactly the same and they should be treated very much the same. And, you know, LeBron can play for any team. So part of it is who's going to pay him the most, but part of it is how much can he impact the culture and how much does he align with the culture of a given team? That's super important to him. And that's super important to all high performers. So I think that from a value standpoint, a valuation standpoint, if you want to retain people, look at the person, not the pocketbook. Yeah. Can you give us a couple of practical examples? Because sometimes people might feel like, well, now is the employee just going to hold the business hostage? What do you mean? Like they're not, they don't have to come to work if they don't feel like it, you know, like they can run away with themselves instead of thinking more reasonable things. Right. I mean, look, I'll, I'll use our own company as a perfect example. You know, the pandemic, I think, showed a lot of companies that you can work remotely. This was a huge issue pre-pandemic that companies, you know, we would have trouble bringing our freelancers to companies because they wanted them on site, you know, all the time. But within our own organization, we've always had a really flexible policy. You can come to work if you need to take a day off to work from home because you have certain things you have to deal with or appointments you have to make. That's fine. Like we, you have to have enough trust in your employees to give them the, the leash that they need to feel good. So for us, quality of life for our employees is, is the most important thing. We definitely don't pay the most you know, we're not we're not the highest paying company in the world, but we truly value our employees. And in COVID, we you know, you had to be much more intentional about that. We had to create opportunities to come together on a human level as opposed to just, you know, sort of our weekly calls that we would have pre pandemic. So we instituted a Monday afternoon check in strict non work, strictly like how is the weekend? What's your plans for the week? Anything you're doing next week? We added into our weekly wins, learns goals, weekly learns call. When you're talking about your your goals for the next week, we want personal goals in there as well. So we have three personal goals for six professional goals. We want people to know that we care about their work-life balance and we care about them as individuals. So to me, that's the number one most important thing that a company can do is demonstrate in those small and, and human ways that you value them. And that's that that's trust being built slowly and over time, and you can take it away in an instant. So those are a couple of examples of, of ways that we, we build trust and, and we sort of show value is we give them the flexibility to, and we give them that leash. Now, we might not give you unlimited leash, right? If you, if you choose to work from home five days a week and you're not really performing, okay, then, then we have to have a conversation and we have to have a different structure. But I think that, uh, Steve, I love this quote from Steve Jobs and you mentioned him earlier. He said, we don't hire the best and brightest so we can tell them what to do. We hire the best and brightest so they can tell us what to do, right? So <laughs> you have to feel enough confidence in your employees to give them that, that space and, and that rope to, to sort of live their life and also work for you. They're spending more time with you than they're spending with your company than they're spending doing almost anything else in their life. So you better make it as human as possible. Yeah, that's a great example. Well, why don't you tell us one more story from the book? So I told you the Bruce Springsteen story. This is sort of a micro micro story. It's fairly quick, but it speaks to the 10X uh, stuff that we were talking about before. Within the first three or four years of starting 10X, we had a client 
who was really fantastic. And most of our clients tend to be slightly older. And by that, I mean, you know, north of 30, mainly because we we really are looking for people with a significant enough experience to be able to really make an impact the moment they start on a project. And, and this guy was, I think, in his early 40s, and he was working for we had put him on a project with a an education startup and they had he was working in one area i want to say it was like data science and they had some other issue at the company and he caught wind of this and this had been a problem that they had not yet been able to solve and it was outside of the purview and the scope of what he was working on but he went to one of the managers and was like i understand you're having this problem i'd love to take a crack at it and within fairly short order he figured out the solution to the problem and it literally, they were in the middle of a, of, a, of a raise and it literally changed the valuation of their company by, you know, a zero or two. So they went from certain valuation where they didn't have this problem solved to being able to talk about having solved this problem and had a completely different valuation during that round. So, you know, that was that was like one of the first, I think, examples that we give in the book of, of us witnessing 10x in action. And I do think that that stuff happens more often than we realize. It's just not something that is really publicized that much, which is which is kind of a shame because there are legitimately people out there who are exponentially better and, and who can make a difference. And the more companies understand that, the more that they will begin to humanize their process and become less calcified. Yeah. So for those of us looking for more folks like that, what are what are some tips? It's the long game. You probably won't find and attract them overnight unless your company already adheres to a lot of the things we're talking about here. So I, I think you have to take a long, hard look at who you are as a company, what your culture is, what you stand for, what your values are. Are your values front and center, like written literally, you know, can people see your values and do you live those values? Then the other thing I think companies can start doing immediately as part of the hiring process is really, especially when it comes to high performers, is really understanding what is important to them. What would make an offer from our company stand out to you versus somebody else? And yes, some people might say money. But I think if you really ask questions, and by the way, one of the things we have is that we created is something called a lifestyle calculator. It's 24 different factors that could go into a compensation or could be considered into a compensation package. And we, we give it to our clients whom we represent in helping them negotiate their compensation packages so that they can internally evaluate what is important to me and how does that importance relate to other types of things that might be important to me. So you, we assign 100 points and you can distribute those 100 points in any one of these 24 different ways. And you'd be amazed. First of all, no two lifestyle calculators are the same. And you'd be amazed how much salary is not like 98%. It's often 20, 30, 40%. So it's it's always important, but there are always other things that people value and, and feel are important to them in whatever their next step is going to be. Companies need to em employ a similar kind of methodology to understand what's important to this person. Is it just salary? Is it salary and equity? Is it title? Is it, you know, f flexibility? Is it the ability to learn and upskill? How do you support de development, professional development as a company? What is the what is the process for rising through the ranks? Do you hire from within? What's that process look like? What's the trajectory? What is, you know, like all of these things have to go into that process. So I think that companies very quickly should assess 
what they stand for, what the, what is the why of what they're doing? What is what makes people care about coming to work? And then find out as much as they can about the candidates that they want to hire so that they can put forth an offer that is different than what somebody else, you know, different than the cookie cutter offer that somebody else is going to put forth. Yeah, I love it. Where Where is that calculator? Is that an internal tool or is that on a website or what? It's it's an internal tool. Uh, we'll send you a link so you can include it here. It's certainly, you know, we don't, we, we put it up in a bunch of different places, but we don't have it uh, publicly on our website. But it's really, it's, it's a fun tool. Even if we don't end up working with somebody on their negotiation, it always challenges them to really evaluate what's important to them. And it helps, it helps with every negotiation if you know what's important to you. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe to end off here, one of my favorite questions is what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Single piece of advice. I yeah, think it has to do, yeah, I think it has to do with, with grit um, and fortitude. It's so easy, especially for entrepreneurs. It's so easy to sort of have a roadblock put in front of you, which inevitably at the beginning of any project, you're going to have tons of them to just say, ah, this is too hard, or I'm not going to continue, or this doesn't make sense, or I'm not the right person to do this. And I think that's obviously selling yourself super short. Like if you're truly passionate about something, you need to stick with it. So grit and fortitude to me are the most important things that certainly young entrepreneurs, but anybody in any position will always do better if they have real grit and fortitude. Yeah. Any advice for, for fostering more of it within ourselves? Not really. <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, I, I think when you're super young, some people have it and some people don't. So it can be learned and it can be innate, but it should always be nurtured and don't shy away from difficult things. You know, a problem just presents you with the opportunity to find a solution. And the harder you work, the more likely you are to find that solution. It's like the saying for luck, luck is the cross section of opportunity and preparedness. So you can't really take advantage of an opportunity if you're not prepared for it. Grit and fortitude gives you that preparation. Sticking with something, really learning it, immersing yourself in it, not not getting sidetracked and and changing, you know, and giving up on something. It allows you to take advantage of luck when it comes your way. You know, it, you talk about that idea of nurturing it. I think about you know, I would like to think about myself as somebody who has greater fortitude or something, right? But I also notice the times when I'm not having it, right? When I'm whining in my head or whatever. And one of the little exercises that's been helpful to me is we've we've had a lot of the volunteers from our charity child rescue on the show, a bunch of these guys from the classified units of special operations or some intelligence community guys and stuff. And, you know, a bunch of those guys are have been business partners or employees or volunteers or friends and stuff. And like, I do think to myself regularly, like, what if, what if those guys were here right now? Would I really be whining like this? <laughs> you know, what, like, what if I was going to take their mindset to it? And the thing is, they're just humans. Like they, they whine about some stuff in their life too, but they have really set an example for me of like adapt and overcome instead of like, instead of wallow in your self-pity. And it's been helpful. It's just like this mental game of like, okay, yeah. what would Peter, or Al, or Tom do right now? You know, and even though it's just imagined what I think they would do, I do find myself being a better version of myself. Well, that that's one of the reasons why we're such big big proponents of mentorship, whether that's mentorship with a coach or a colleague, someone that helps keep you on task and calls you out, but also is like an inspiration to you. Like, I want to do better. I want to continue down this road because I don't want to let that person down because they're awesome in whatever capacity. But there is one thing I want to say about grit and fortitude. There are times, and this is something we learn over time and, and you know, wisdom provides us with this insight, when 
you know, you do want to pivot and, and change quickly. Like I'm a big fan of, of small experiments that you can learn something from. And if it doesn't work, you move on to something else. So don't mistake grit and fortitude for just sticking with a bad idea. You need to have certain experiments and certain success metrics set up to evaluate whether it's worth sticking with a specific thing. So, you know, there is that balance between yeah. no, staying no. with it and, you know, and moving quickly. Well, it's such a good point. And, and actually, you know, I'll point to the same guys, you know, they have like rock solid clarity on mission success, you know, like, like whether we are accomplishing this or not is not a question. Like they're going to accomplish it or die trying. Right. But the vehicle of how to get to that destination is highly fluid. Like they adapt and overcome. Do you know what I mean? Like they are totally willing to throw out a vehicle that is not getting there. They're not willing to give up on the goal, but they're totally willing to ditch a, an, an unsuccessful strategy. Yeah, I think the methods you have to be fluid with, but the the mission needs to be, you need to have the focus and grit to stick with that mission. The methodology is where you experiment and, and you pivot and you change and you adjust. Well, I just want to say it's great work that you guys do with your charity as well. Thank you so much. We love that balance. I th and I think that's super important to, to be able to balance whether it's you actually working tactically and tangibly at the mission of the charity or whether you're raising funds or donating your time, it's so important to have something in your life to balance, you know, the commerce we do is one thing, but hopefully there are other things that we can do that leave the world a little bit of a better place than we had it when we came in. Yeah, I love it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it.